Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today, we're going to talk about the most famous medical illustrator of the 20th century, one whose name is often mentioned in the same breath as Andreas Vesalius, Leonardo da Vinci, William Hunter, and Henry Gray. Now, I remember the first time I heard his name myself. I just started medical school and was in the process of buying my first medical textbooks when another student told me that I had to buy The Atlas of Human Anatomy by Frank Netter. I remember being absolutely stunned by the detail and beauty of his drawings and the realistic characters and scenes that brought them to life, so to speak. And all this created by the man in the photograph in the atlas, sitting at his drafting table, cigar in hand, the legendary Dr. Frank Netter. So let's paint a picture of the man and his work in this episode of Legends of Surgery. As mentioned, Frank Netter's Atlas of Human Anatomy has been a well-known tome for medical students, residents, and doctors, not to mention other health professionals, since it was first published in 1989. But I wonder how many of you know that he was a surgeon first, and spent most of his career as a commercial artist working for various pharmaceutical companies, which gave birth to that magnum opus that he himself referred to as his Sistine Chapel. FYI, did you know that it's called the Sistine Chapel after the Pope, who ordered its construction, which took place from 1473 to 1481, Pope Sixtus IV. This pope also authorized the Spanish Inquisition and confirmed the right of the Portuguese to acquire slaves along the African coast. So, bit of a mixed bag there. Now let's get this podcast started in earnest. Frank Henry Netter was born on April 25, 1906, in the middle of Manhattan Island, New York City, at the intersection of 53rd Street and 7th Avenue. Netter wanted to be an artist from an early age, One anecdote was that, as a child, he preferred to visit the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art, also known as MoMA, rather than playing with other children. His father encouraged his love of art and drawing, and as a teenager he got a scholarship to the National Academy of Design, which he attended in the evenings while still in high school. Sadly, his father died when Netter was 12, and his mother did not approve of him becoming an artist, fearing that the, quote, bohemian lifestyle of an artist, end quote, would be his downfall. Despite this, he attended the City College of New York, drawing portraits and cartoons for the school's yearbook, and spent the summers as an artist and set designer at a hotel in the Catskills. Netter also studied art at the National Academy of Design and the Art Students League, and by the 1920s he was rapidly becoming a successful commercial artist, making contributions to publications such as Collier's, The Saturday Evening Post, Esquire, and The New York Times. But upon the death of his mother, Netter decided to honor her memory by enrolling in medical school, quote, truly believing that I was through with art for good, end quote. Luckily for us, he was just getting started. He enrolled in 1927 at the medical school at New York University. His notebooks were crammed with illustrations, saying, quote, I could learn my subjects best by making drawings for myself, end quote. Some of his professors took note of this artistic skill and had him do illustrations for their books and articles, which also allowed him to make a bit of money. Before graduating in 1931, Netter met Mary McFadden, a fellow medical student from Greensboro, North Carolina, who had attended UNC's two-year medical school, then transferred to New York University to finish her medical training. They married in 1931 and both interned at the fabled Bellevue Hospital, Frank completing a surgical internship in 1933. Now, before we send him out into the world of surgical practice, let's take a minute to consider the history of Bellevue. In 1798, the city of New York purchased Bellevue Farm, a property near the East River on the island of Manhattan, 
which had been used to quarantine the sick during a series of yellow fever epidemics. The hospital opened on this site in 1816 and officially became Bellevue Hospital in 1824. It has had many firsts, including the first nursing school in the U.S. based on Florence Nightingale's principles, the first city morgue, and the first horse-drawn ambulance service in the nation, among others. But it is the opening of the Pavilion for the Insane in 1879, a radical approach to mental health care at the time, that has led to the hospital becoming synonymous with psychiatric hospitals, an unfair generalization for a center that has been at the forefront of medical and surgical care for three centuries. But let's get back to Netter. In addition to joining the outpatient surgical service at Mount Sinai Hospital, he also joined a private surgical practice in Manhattan. In his own words, quote, I was assistant to a very brilliant but very erratic surgeon in New York, and the future seemed to hold promise, end quote. Unfortunately, the future also held an event that would disrupt America and the world, the Great Depression. His medical practice collapsed as patients could no longer afford their bills, so he returned to art to supplement his practice income. This was around the time that pharmaceutical manufacturers began to develop what Netter called, quote, wonderful new products, end quote, and they were looking for a way to get the information about these drugs to the medical profession. He began to receive offers to do some freelance art for them. One of his earliest works was a whole series on the use of Novocaine. Novocaine, or Procaine, its proper name, was invented in 1905 by German chemist Alfred Einhorn, who also gave it the commercial name Novocaine to highlight its newness as a product. It was the first man-made injectable local anesthesia, replacing the more potent and addictive cocaine. Novocaine was first used clinically by German surgeon Heinrich Braun, who lived from 1862 to 1903, in that same year, 1905. It was eventually replaced with lidocaine in 1947 as Novocaine could cause severe allergic reactions. Braun also recommended adding adrenaline as a vasoconstrictor to local anesthetics in 1903, a practice that is still done today. Anyways, Netter began to worry that his artwork was causing him to neglect his patients, but demand was constantly growing and he knew he had to choose whether he was going to practice surgery or be an artist. The turning point came one day while he was in his combined studio and medical offices. An advertising manager visited Netter, stating that he had a new product coming out and his company wanted five pictures to illustrate its use. Netter, feeling guilty about his side hustle, decided to ask for an exorbitant fee so that he'd retract the offer. Normally, he would charge $50 per picture, so he decided to ask for $300 apiece, making a grand total of $1,500. The ad manager said, well, that's very high, and I'll have to get an okay on that. I'll call you tomorrow. The following day, he called back and said, It's all okay now, and you can go ahead and do the pictures, and we agree that the pictures will be 1500 a piece. Not long after that, Netter decided to give up medical practice altogether and devote himself exclusively to medical illustrations. He saw his last patient in 1934. In 1937, after a period of time doing freelance work, the SIBA or CIBA Pharmaceutical Company came and said they had a heart drug in preparation, Digitalis, and the advertising manager had the idea to make a folder in the form of a heart, which would open up, and inside you'd see the actual interior anatomy of the heart, as Netter would paint it. On the face of this, they would print the advertising copy. Fun fact, Bavarian botanist Leonard Fuchs, who lived from 1501 to 1566, gave Digitalis its name, from the German word for finger hut, because, as he said, the flower resembles the thimble used for sewing. 
These folders became so popular that doctors were requesting just the heart paintings, with no ads, and so Seba sent it to them free of charge. This led to a whole series of artwork of organs as a way of teaching anatomy. It was then decided to do a series on pathology, so brochures were made with 10 to 12 plates in a little folder. Demand grew and Siba could not keep up. They decided to publish all the work Netter had done up to that point and publish it as a book, which became the Siba Collection of Medical Illustrations, an eight-volume tome. He even did a project which took seven months for the San Francisco Golden Gate Exposition called The Transparent Woman, a two-meter-tall sculpture that represented the life of women and the developmental changes during reproductive years, accompanied by a recorded voice, which explained the hormonal processes that occurred during menstruation, a project viewed as extremely educational and stunning to view. Now, like most people from his generation, Netter's life was disrupted by World War II, but that did not stop him from using his talents to assist in the war effort. He was an officer in the U.S. Army, first stationed at the Army Institute of Pathology and later at the Surgeon General's office. There, he supervised a team of illustrators who prepared manuals for the troops on various topics, including first aid, radiation technology, and field sanitation, as well as techniques for survival in the tropics for Allied troops in the Pacific Theater. Netter planned, contributed rough sketches, and did the layouts for many of these manuals prior to their completion by a team of illustrators under his supervision. Following the war, the Netter family moved out to Oyster Bay, Long Island, where he continued his full-time collaboration with Siba. He did a series of volumes on the anatomy, physiology, pathology, and diseases of mankind, system by system. Starting in 1948, this turned into a 13-book series known as The Green Books. So let's take a step back and talk about how he produced his work. Netter's process was to have extensive discussions with leading medical experts to ensure the most accurate information, and he spent hours reviewing sketches with physicians, anatomists, and consultants that were experts in their field. He visited clinics and hospitals, observed surgeries, examined pathological specimens, and viewed dissections. And he took a very professional approach to his work. In his own words, quote, It is one thing to make a drawing and have fun out of it, using all the time you need. But if you're going to make a living at it, you must be on a production basis. You cannot struggle with a picture. Work must go out. And you cannot do this unless you have thorough training in both medicine and in art, end quote. Despite this pragmatic attitude to producing commercial art, there was something unique about it. So what is it that made this work so special? Netter's talent was the ability to merge medical knowledge and artistic expression, weaving a doctor's humanity into the explanation of biological concepts. It made you feel as if you were peering into the anatomy of a living person, not a cadaver, a corpse. Often his cutaway views of anatomical relationships were illustrated with adjacent skin, healthy and intact, or with heads partially dissected but with eyes open, hair combed, and facial expressions evident. When asked how he decided what elements to include in an illustration, he always gave the same answer, quote, Strange as it may seem, the hardest part of making a medical picture is not the drawing at all. It is the planning, the conception, the determination of the point of view and the approach which will best clarify the subject that takes the most effort. That is why I often sit for hours before the drawing board, sketching and resketching a subject in a dozen or more ways, trying to determine the best way of bringing out a point. If I clearly visualize what I want to draw, it is a simple matter to transfer it to paper." Quote. 
By the early 1970s, he and his wife Vera moved to Florida, but he continued his output of illustrations. Over his career, Netter produced over 4,000 illustrations, everything from anatomy and embryology to histology, physiology, pharmacology, pathology, diagnostic procedures, surgical techniques, and clinical manifestations of many diseases. By this point, there were persistent requests from physicians and students for an atlas devoted to gross human anatomy. This involves sorting through his massive collection to curate what Netter referred to as his personal Sistine Chapel, eventually leading to the first edition of the Atlas of Human Anatomy, which was published in 1989. Netter died not long after the publication of this masterpiece on September 17, 1991, at the age of 85. Nicknamed the Michelangelo of Medicine by the Saturday Evening Post, Netter was continuing in the tradition of medical illustration dating back to antiquity. The legendary surgeon Dr. Michael DeBakey, see podcast episodes 85 and 87, once said of him, quote, Dr. Netter's contribution to the study of human anatomy is epical. He has advanced our understanding of anatomy more than any other medical illustrator since the 16th century when Vesalius introduced drawings based on cadaveric dissections, end quote. Now, in addition to this incredible legacy, a medical school was named after him the Frank H. Netter, M.D., School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University in North Haven, Connecticut, opens its doors to students in 2013. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, I think we'll meet the legendary French surgeon Eugene-Louise Doyen. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes, and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.